So I've uh, added to my title. You see, I took uh, Paul's uh, uh, basic approach and changed around my assignment. Uh, but I've added to the title just a little bit. Actually, it's the original assignment, but it's a better title. Innocence Abroad, question mark, the Middle East and the United States. So that's the new title. And we're going to start with a joke, but it's, a, it's an old joke. And um, sometimes old political jokes don't translate or recycle especially well, but this one has some eerie resonance to it. So take yourself back to 1993, and uh, it's the first Clinton administration, and Hillary Care has just about wrecked the whole thing. She's like the, the most reviled person in America, and uh, 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 the, the healthcare package uh, of 93 is about, to, is about to crash. So Bill is... Uh, goes to the beach to contemplate what he could do to shore up the poll numbers and, you know, what presidents do. Um, so he's on the beach and, you know, just walking along uh, deep in thought and he sees something in the sand and, you know, kind of digs it up with his toe and it looks to be something. So he picks it up, it looks like a little lamp and dusts it off, the sand off and whoosh, big form appears and, 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 and Bill says, who are you? And he said, well, I'm the genie. I'm in the lamp that you just rubbed. And uh, he said, well, what's the deal? He said, you get any wish that you want, anything you want. Bill said, oh my goodness, what an opportunity. Here I am thinking, what could happen that could really, you know, save my uh, administration? He said, okay, here it is. I'd like peace in the Middle East. And the genie said, Peace in the Middle East. I'm not sure I know what you're talking about. And, and Bill said, well, you know the Middle East. It's there, the Eastern Mediterranean, the Persian Gulf, and all that stuff. I, I've got a map here in my pocket. He pulled out a map and gave it to the genie. And the genie looked at it and said, okay, I know what you're talking about. That, the Middle East, okay, yeah. He said, look, They've been killing each other over there. It's been murder and mayhem for, you know, a thousand years. Uh, when I said you could have something, I meant something in the realm of the possible, you know? Uh, so, here, said, make another wish. And Bill said, I want you to make my wife the most popular woman in America. And the genie said, uh, can I see that map again? <laughs> yeah, except here comes Hillary again. So anyway, and then there's the Middle East still. So, uh, well, we're talking about the United States and the Middle East today. So uh, very quickly from the standpoint of uh, thinking that most modern states are inquisitive, unjust, and aggressive most of the time. Let me say something about American foreign policy. As Sheldon Richmond has put it recently, U.S. foreign policy is a shambles. Uh, in, uh, in every uh, foreign policy initiative of the current administration, uh, well, the, the initiative has blown up uh, in the face of the administration, in some cases quite literally. Under Obama, the smooth-talking neocon, the United States bullies its allies, spies on them, 
uh, supports reprehensible regimes against their own people while claiming to spread democracy. Uh, while we recoil at horror, uh, with horror at the beheading of US citizens uh, on YouTube, our closest ally, or one of them uh, in the Middle East, during the first half of this August, just passed, executed by beheading 19 individuals for crimes that were victimless. Well, one was executed for sorcery, and there may have been victims uh, in that crime. I don't have any idea, but uh, that's our noble uh, ally, uh, one of them in the Middle East. Um, Washington calls regularly for armed intervention uh, all across the globe. It's a shambles indeed, and uh, it's looking like a shambles less and less like the metaphor and more like the original meaning of the word shambles, which is a slaughterhouse. So, two quick points. First of all, and I won't even elaborate, that the aggressive behavior of the United States is bipartisan. It, it will not get better when the Republicans come in, and after them it will not get better when the Democrats come in. Second, before we make heroes of other state actors on the global stage, we have to consider that they too are creatures of the state, with the same proclivities and the same potentials uh, as our own uh, state actors. Uh, in a sense, we live in a world of villains and no heroes. American anti-statists must remember that the enemy of our frenemy, the United States, is, uh, is not our friend necessarily. In fact, undoubtedly not at all. It's, uh, it's just a state temporarily in opposition to our own. On the other hand, there are plenty of victims in this whole picture. So uh, how do I derive my title, Innocence Abroad? Well, the title is uh, one that Mark Twain used for his first book, a travel book about a group tour, a package tour he took in 1867 to what was then called the Near East. Uh, he and his party sailed on the, the good ship Quaker City, uh, making excursions and exploring the Middle East. Uh, and this was all, I, I, you know, from the perspective of Americans at the end of the bloody war between the states. Um, Twain wrote, uh, of the goal of the groups uh, uh, of, the, of the group, and he said, "We want we wanted something thoroughly foreign and un uncompromisingly foreign." And of course, they got it. Um, now, the the Twain describing all this to us is the younger Mark Twain, the one with considerable prejudices, um, the one who was not yet convinced of the vile nature of imperialism his jumping frog story, the one that made him famous, was only two years in the past. Um, he was a new celebrity at this point, but already his travel tales are showing the, all the irony and the, the, the probing observation that we associate with him. Still, he paints a very ugly picture of the Middle East. Uh, his Middle East is beautiful from a distance, but when you get up close, it's filthy and fly-ridden, diseased. It runs on bakshish and obsequiousness and callousness. But in keeping with the, the good name of his touring ship, the Quaker City, uh, his intentions are peaceful uh, and his criticisms are in the end lighthearted. So innocence abroad. Now, I suggest that there is indeed a kind of innocence in American foreign policy. If we understand innocence in the sense of innocence of knowledge, innocence of human complexities, innocence of a kind of study to understand uh, other societies. But in other ways, of course, the United States has been anything but innocent. 
the relations of the United States and the Middle East since 1900 have been marked by uh, a number of patterns or themes which are now interwoven so thoroughly uh, that it's really difficult to disentangle those patterns. But today I want to try to do that. And I'll divide these themes into three kind of general groups or, or tropes or uh, whatever you would like to call them, themes. Uh, and then comment briefly on those things. So the first pattern that I want to deal with is uh, reflected by my own title, uh, the persistent Western idea that there is one Middle East. So it's the Middle East, right? And it's just one thing. Well, uh, the terminology is inadequate. Uh, and interestingly, the, this very expression, Middle East, was invented around 1900 and only gained wide usage after World War II. Uh, the 19th century Eastern question had to do mainly with the Balkans and Anatolia. Uh, the phrase the Ottoman Empire uh, came closer to expressing what we think of as the Middle East, but uh, of course it didn't include uh, some important parts like the Persian Empire and the Maghreb in North Africa. Um, the, uh, there were other candidates, but, uh, but to tell you the truth, even in American textbooks, even in the last 10, 20, 30 years, even after World War II consecutively, the maps change. You know, the map of the Middle East in the front, it, it, it's all different shapes, depending on what, on what people are interested in, where the crises are at that moment. So, it's, we don't know quite what it is, what shape it is. But here our troubles only begin because if we uh, define the Middle East, we have to recognize that just as there's no such thing as the Americans or the Swiss or the Belgians or, or whoever, the Turks, uh, that uh, it, to, to think that you could take this huge uh, piece of the globe, 4,000 miles by 3,000, something like that, and, uh, and then wrap into it all the similarities produced by religion, culture, geography, and history, uh, and come up with a kind of basic identity that's uh, ridiculous. For one thing, the history of the region has been a divisive one. It's produced pockets of, uh, well, different habits and different cultures. Uh, the, uh, the ethnic stocks of this region themselves are uh, as recent uh, DNA testing and archaeological uh, uh, results have shown, uh, they're very starkly varied throughout the, uh, throughout the region. And not all are Muslims by any means, of course. There are many Christian sects, Zoroastrians, Jews, Yazidis, um, uh, many others. Uh, in education, social status, all these variables come into play. So communication forces us to generalize. I mean, we all do this all the time. But um, on the other hand, we don't have to, uh, we don't have to uh, uh, make our reasoning simplistic just because uh, of that. But I think that this term is, is you know, in a sense, designed to, to make an easy handle for people to, uh, uh, to understand. And I think that's partly how it's used. It, uh, it's, it's a simplistic. Um, expression uh, fostered in the media and political propaganda that helps to, to direct mass uh, ideas about who uh, lives in the Middle East. Indeed, the picture of a monoculture Middle East made up of terrorists is so potent that at times since 9-1-1, the United States government has had to really rein in its 
uh, the brutish popular sentiment uh, of the people. Uh, because they, it, it just becomes a danger to public order. In other words, they, they oversold and, uh, and people uh, begin to go crazy. One final notice about uh, American perceptions of the Mideastern identity. Uh, one often hears a, a very blithe commentary on the extent to which the Middle East has been beset by conflict, and it's, it's, it's in that joke too, right? In the standard narrative, they over there are always killing each other, there's little regard for human life, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, now, as a historian, a historian, I can tell you this, this view is, uh, is really, in the long view, quite false. I mean, there's been a lot of warfare in the last century and a lot of conflict and so forth. Uh, and certainly some historical periods of the Middle East stand out as periods of conflict. I mean, the generation of Muhammad, the, the Crusaders generation, and, and so forth. But on the whole, I mean, uh, some large percentage of the time, uh, people have lived normal lives and uh, engaged in production and exchange and married and had children and died of old age. Now, in the last hundred years, as I said, that there's been much more conflict. Well, what happened? First, some local regimes adopted Western-style government. And if you want to read a picture of, of the, the, the systematic destruction of a, of a functioning country, uh, look at the reign of Mehmet Ali in, in Egypt uh, as he westernized the country and, uh, and uh, enslaved and ruined and, and so forth and so on. I won't go on. But n numerous regimes adopted the Western nationalist model. And, uh, and so this produced misery and conflict. So that's one thing that happened. The West came. Um, another, and another thing... Uh, was that the West came quite literally. In other words, if you add up the invasions of Russians, British, Americans, French, Italians, and so forth, then uh, yes, there's a lot of violence in the region, but I don't think it's, it's, say it's endemic. I mean, if people bring the violence to you, that's not something like you don't regard life very highly. I mean, it's a, it's a completely different thing. Now, since World War II, three engines have powered large-scale violence in the Middle East in a slightly different pattern. Uh, and these three things are the emergence of control of the Middle East as an essential strategic objective of the United States, uh, and then changes in the internal dynamics of, of Islam, and uh, then finally the creation of the nationalist state of Israel. Actually, all of these causative factors have to do with identity, really, mistaken identity, created identity, and the like. So let me turn now to American strategic considerations, more broadly the interests of the United States in the Middle East. We can use this term to encompass a host of issues, interests. I mean, um, uh, American politicians talk all the time about American interests in one place or the other, especially the Middle East. Um, we have to understand that this, uh, this state term interest is totally different from the, from the, the, the terms uh, that we use, you know. I'm interested in Turkey, I, you know, uh, interest here, but because I disagree with something I find here, it doesn't mean I go to war against Turkey. Uh, so, uh, but, but on the other hand, countries, states really, uh, really do that. Um, no, the interests, I mean, are the collective objects of acquisition and advantage fostered by the state and its favored henchmen. A, a neutral and innocent observer dropped into the Persian Gulf uh, today uh, would have to look around. I mean, if you were a rational person, uh, one of the higher IQs, uh, the, uh, would have to say, 
would have to say, you know, um, why, why, why do the Americans have all this equipment here and all these divisions and all these naval installations and all of this uh, huge expense and they live on the other side of the world? So uh, the answer, of course, in America would be, well, our interests are there. So uh, in the terminology of the Middle East comes up again here. The age of high imperialism itself gave us the, the phrase the Middle East, as I mentioned, it was 1900. And apparently it came into use uh, among global uh, power strategists, uh, British and American, I think, to begin with. Uh, uh, it was really made popular by the, uh, by the American uh, imperialist, uh, social Darwinist uh, strategist Alfred Thayer Mahan in a famous article from 1902 and uh, kind of gained some circulation, but didn't really uh, catch on until after World War II. One thing all these strategists were talking about was uh, trade. And international trade might seem a worthy cause to a group of liberty and property-minded uh, individuals uh, such as we have here. But as with many state interests, the state is mainly interested in large corporate or mercantilist deals. That's the kind of trade which is uh, which it promotes. Uh, trade that helps strategic advantage. Indeed, um, whether military or not, Western trade with the Middle East, and this is not just the United States, but if you, if you take the whole uh, Western uh, relationship, it's all about tobacco and cotton monopolies, oil cartelization agreements, uh, state trade agreements on both ends, um, that type of thing. But Trade then would be an important national interest, right? In other words, we've got to we've got to uh, at least have some amount of, of if we have a big amount of trade, we have to protect that. Um, that's the argument. But hold on, American trade with the whole Middle East, excluding Turkey, amounts to about five percent of the American total of trade. Period. Uh, so trade in general is not the issue. But I know what you're saying. Oil. Ah, now there's the interest. By and large, uh, the U.S. Is, is really interested in, in big strategic items and oil above all. Well, that's the way all Americans drive around. We have that, all that oil coming from the Middle East. Well, in the, in the United States, various opinion polls really do show that three-quarters of Americans imagine that the United States is, uh, is dependent on Middle Eastern countries for most of our oil imports. Some believe for most of our oil. The reality is far different, and I'm just going to give some net figures. The United States at the moment produces something like 40% of its uh, own oil, and in terms of the oil then imported, the other 60%, uh, the leading source at, at one-third of all that imported is Canada. So it's not from the Middle East. The whole Persian Gulf region supplies about 15% of American oil right now. Uh, it was a little higher in the past, but it's never been critical. Yet Middle Eastern oil in the last century has been uppermost in American minds. From the early interests of the Rockefellers in northern Syria to the special relationship set up with Ibn Saud in the 1920s to the toppling of the Iranian liberals in 1953, the oil crisis of the early 70s, and on and on and on. But if we always have had relatively cheap oil available, and enough of it, why this emphasis on Middle Eastern oil? 
In a sense, special oil deals were, on the one hand, always about the warfare welfare state. Um, and especially those parts of welfare related to corporate welfare, in this case. On the other hand, the hysteria about oil on the part of the American state was always about fear and about issues of the Cold War, imperial activities, perpetual war, and other kinds of things. Jimmy Carter branded the oil crisis of his day in the 70s the moral equivalent of war. And it's just that you need something like that. You need some, uh, he hadn't thought of terrorists yet, so he said, well, that's the, the oil is the moral equivalent of war. One more comment on the US strategic uh, interest in the region. Um, the intervention into domestic politics in the Middle East has followed a dreadful trajectory uh, described usually by regime change um, after the change, radical domestic opposition to the U.S.'s chosen man, and then some kind of end game which cost thousands of lives and much destruction. Uh, in the end, reconstructive uh, efforts which enrich corporate rent-seeking capitalists in the United States. And usually the end game includes uh, 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 a domestic situation in which uh, peripheral social groups of that given place are inflamed into radicalism, terrorism, nihilism, etc. It's a terrible trajectory, to say the least. So my last name is Zionism. As uh, American-born Israeli historian and diplomat um, Michael Oren shows in his recent and very good book, uh, Power, Faith, and Fantasy, the, uh, the idea of sending Jews to occupy Arab Palestine has existed in American religious and cultural thought since the 18th century. Uh, before there was Zionism in the 1880s in Central Europe, um, there was a small but focused movement for the restoration of Israel, which made its way from New England to the south and then beyond. More generally, Americans have tended to look at the Middle East through biblical lens in any case, and the, the rise of the missionary movement in the mid-19th century contributed still more to future uh, Zionism since missionaries had very little luck in converting Arabs and they, they went back to some biblical proof text and said, but the Jews are supposed to be like ingathered or something and it's a little vague, but, but they're supposed to be gathered there and maybe they'll become Christians. We can convert them, can't convert the Arabs. So uh, that, was the, uh, that was the idea. So in Europe, Theodore Herzl's book, The Jewish State, was published in 1896, and the organization was, was really an organization of the late uh, uh, 1880s and 1890s, uh, carried along by wealthy supporters in France, Germany, Britain, and the United States, the kinds of people Paul was discussing earlier. The upsurge really came from the intensification of pogroms and legal restrictions in Western Russia in the 80s and 90s, uh, the Pale of Settlement, and uh, by the 90s, Jews from the Russian Pale, as it was called, were immigrating in large numbers to big cities in Central Europe, uh, uh, United States, and Latin America. Still, many influential Jews on both sides of the Atlantic were skeptical of this Zionist program, which was the, it, obviously the idea to build a homeland in um, a place where people already were living. Yet in the United States in particular, the organization, organized Zionist movement had support from two quarters, and this is, this is really crucial to know. Uh, uh, on the, 
on the one hand, there was the there were influential Jewish individuals, and as, as Paul said, not all. I mean, this is not taking a whole class, but but certainly in individuals from the worlds of business, education, entertainment, journalism, um, supported Zionism, and these included New York banker Jacob Schiff, uh, one of the most influ influential people in the country, Supreme Court Justice uh, Louis Brandeis, was on the Supreme Court, and many other men of prominence. Uh, these men founded dozens of Zionist organizations, some high profile, some low, but, uh, but a lot. Uh, the second basis of the support was, however, uh, American Protestant denominations of quite a large variety. Indeed, the important connection between American Protestants and missionary activity um, uh, and the promotion of a Jewish homeland is really important to understand. In other words, that's that's what's that's what's motivating a lot of uh, a lot of this uh, kind of you might say homegrown uh, Zionism. So uh, that I think is uh, a very important point uh, that we should understand. And the coming together of the two sides of American Zionism, and I mean the, the Jewish elite uh, uh, supporters, and then broad sections of Protestantism, is really symbolized in in a, something called the Blackstone Memorial of 1991, a petition in which uh, Protestant minister William Blackstone called for the immediate creation of a homeland for Jews in Palestine. Uh, both J.P. Morgan and uh, John Rockefeller uh, signed this document, by the way. Uh, Morgan and Rockefeller suggested progressives to us, since they were the leading uh, uh, force behind the, and leading money behind the progressives. Um, and for more on this whole progressive Protestant uh, intellectual connection, uh, 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 you should read uh, Gary North uh, uh, commenting on Murray Rothbard, and you should read Murray Rothbard, and uh, this whole discussion of uh, this important part of American history, if you're interested. As the Presbyterian Woodrow Wilson said in the midst of his 1912 presidential campaign, if I ever have the occasion to help in the restoration of the Jewish people of Palestine, I shall surely do so. Now, as mentioned, uh, though Jews uh, across the world were far from unanimous in joining up with the Zionist program of creating a homeland, Zionism gained momentum during World War I, uh, only in part because of the famous Balfour de Declaration. Uh, uh, after World War I, the United States refused to involve America in the Audrey mandate system. So the dominant theme of post-World uh, post War I uh, Zionist history has far more to do with Britain than the United States. Um, uh, I may seem to state the obvious, but uh, whatever the state of Israel is now, the Zionist state that was created there in the, with the specialist support of uh, the United States government uh, right after World War II, uh, that was a government program. <coughs> And as uh, 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 Michael Oral says in his book, and he was the ambassador of Israel to the United States, uh, so he's uh, I'm just saying what, what his background is, uh, this was largely a government program hatched out uh, in the United States. The British played an important role, and eventually, eventually many countries did, but uh, it's, a, it's a government program of the Americans. Among the many stages of official American commitment, of course, was the support by Harry Truman uh, of the State of Israel uh, at the end of World War II. Yet though the United States supports uh, 
uh, Israel with considerable funds, um, the events were not really much of a concept for most Americans until the 60s. And, and here, I mean, Paul discussed this, and so I don't really need to go step by step here. Um, but uh, it's certainly true that, uh, that uh, there had to be a lot of persuasion. The, the great movie Exodus, uh, and then uh, the, the less great uh, Melvin Shabelson movie, uh, uh, Cast a Giant Shadow. These, these were important movie, movies in reaching the public and, and, and connecting American ideas about the Middle East and, and uh, the state of Israel with actresses like Angie Dickinson and Eve Marie Saint and, uh, and other beautiful people, you know, uh, finding their way to support, uh, to support the Middle East. Frank Sinatra was in one of those uh, as well. So uh, uh, there was a lot, of, uh, a lot of spade work done, and then 1967 really swept things into a, into a whole new, uh, into a whole new uh, kind of ballgame. So, uh, in modern times, and you can, you can read uh, Steve Snagowski's uh, book, uh, Transparent Cabal, which Paul Gottfried wrote the uh, preface to, or introduction to. Uh, there are a number of uh, good recent books on this. But let me just say, the United States at current levels gives uh, aid to Israel at the rate of about $8.5 million per day. $8.5 million per day. I know, 8.5 million doesn't go as far as it used to, but 365 days, it adds up. Well, to conclude, in action, these three large themes are always intertwined, but uh, isolating them is essential to understanding American relations with the Middle East. Uh, if we just take this terrible summer just past, this uh, uh, summer of, of, we have death and horror, uh, we have this bizarre YouTube uh, beheading thing going on, inspired by America's brutal wars for democracy. Um, we have the killing of kids in Gaza, and Americans are, are, are paying for, uh, partly some, uh, in some way for that. Um, and few mainstream uh, com commentators ever connected these two. Uh, but the big picture is a status picture, and I confess in, in my very closing uh, lines, that this is uh, often for me overwhelming just to look at this picture. But then uh, it's also true that that's what the state has taught me to be, overwhelmed. So let me conclude by suggesting that the individuals of the United States and the individuals of the Middle East have enjoyed long and complex relationships, uh, voluntary exchanges of all kinds. Uh, uh, it's, uh, it's the states that declare war and people that, uh, that have uh, real uh, relationships of human action. Uh, the state has bedeviled those relationships and made them more difficult in many ways. But if it's to be dismantled, it has to be dismantled uh, piecemeal. And I think the individuals are the way that uh, this has to be done. It can't be support of some revolutionary group. It can't be support of some rioting movement, as well-meaning as they may be. Uh, it has to be. Uh, it has to be through the means of undermining the state from below. And I think if we eventually achieve this, or if it's achieved after our time, I think that world will, will in fact be a much more innocent uh, world than the one we have. Thank you. <laughs>